Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am thrilled to have Dr. Raymond Moody back on the show. In 1975, Dr. Moody coined the term near-death experience in his book, Life After Life. For half a century, he has researched some of life's greatest mysteries. As both a PhD in philosophy and an MD, he has a strong interest in how medical realities intersect with the ineffable, ineffable realm of philosophy. Throughout his five-decade career, he has explored themes related to the transpersonal aspects of death, dying, and grief. In his book, Glimpses of Eternity, he discusses the phenomena of shared death experiences. He writes about his inquiry into past lives in his book, Coming Back, and he shares methods for evoking the dead from ancient Greece to modern times in his book, Reunions. But today, we are going to be talking about Raymond's most recent book, which I am so excited about, and it is titled, God is Bigger Than the Bible. We are God's Stories. Welcome to the program, Raymond. Thank you so much, Marla. It's always good to be with you. Yeah, it's so great to see you again. Uh, So I, I just have to start this interview with the poem that you started the book with yeah. because it's just so, so profound. So here we go. Could we with ink the ocean fill were the whole war- earth of parchment made were every single stick a quill were every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God alone would drain the ocean dry nor would the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And that's anonymous, um, 1799. And you you may have to go back and listen to that a few times because I had to read it a few times, but I just, I found that, I just found it so profound. So let's just jump right in with your new book. And I know that um, today you, you certainly like the Bible. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. You, you did not grow up religious, and therefore nope. you hadn't really read much of the Bible. And your first um, interest was in astrology, correct? Astronomy. Astronomy, yes. I always do that to you, don't I? Astronomy, <laughs> yes. And t- just tell us briefly about your background and how you got kind of interested as a child into into the afterlife? Well, what happened was that not being familiar with religion, except as a mysterious phenomenon, I mean, I just didn't know 
I think, as I remember, I went to church three times when, when I was a kid. I was 12 years old. I gather in retrospect that my dad was going through his midlife crisis and kind of wondering, well, maybe there's something to this. So he took us to this Presbyterian church for three times. And I can't remember if anybody else kept going, but after the third time, my dad realized this was not for me. So I, I just sat that one out. And um, so um, astronomy was my thing. I wanted to be an astronomer and a comedian, actually. And uh, still I'm a, an astronomy buff, but um, I went to the University of Virginia at age 18. And I can honestly tell you, Marla, that and at age 18, my only exposure to the notion of an afterlife was in the cartoons you see with the clouds and the angels. That was my association to it. I thought that it was like um, humor. Okay. And so I went to UVA, University of Virginia, anticipating being an astronomer, but I had gotten interested in philosophy in high school. So I took a philosophy course and I was hooked. The first book we read in philosophy one was Plato's Republic. And um, one of the greatest books there is, and contrary to the general opinion that what the uh, the the um, republic is about is justice, is what everybody say, says, and that's true. However, it's it's specifically about justice in relationship to the concept of an afterlife. And I was hooked in the first few pages. I said, I'm going to be a philosophy major, and. And Plato is still my hero after 50 something years. And what a guy, I mean, I was just astonished at this mind. And he was the first person I ever realized took this idea of an afterlife seriously. And this kind of sounds ridiculous in a way, but it was the fact that Plato obviously took the question of a life after death seriously was what woke me up to it. I mean, I thought, whoa, if he is thinking there's something to this, maybe I should look into this. So the whole book, The Republic, culminates in this near-death experience of a warrior. And I asked my professor Hammond about, like, what's that all about? And he said, these early Greek philosophers studied cases of people of uh, who were believed dead and revived and had these experiences. And he said, Plato took it seriously, but that others like Democritus, who had figured out that things are made up of atoms, said that, oh, this is just the, you know, the residual biological activity in the body. I never thought that it might be something to do with the modern world. This was in September of 1962. But three years later, I heard of Dr. George Ritchie there in uh, Charlottesville, professor of psychiatry, who had such an experience. And George was such a tender, sweet guy. He was always talking to students and all. And I, I listened to one of his lectures and I, I knew, number one, that George Ritchie was sincere. I didn't know what this meant, but it was certainly intriguing. So subsequently to that, as I've just talked with thousands of people from all over the world who had these experiences. So that's how I got interested in the afterlife. Right. Yes, George certainly was so influential in your life in, in many different ways. And 
now that tens of millions of people have come out with um, these stories about their personal NDEs, I, I, to quote from your book, you say, you say after you say say after listening to all the stories, God shines through these people's stories as a powerfully loving, compassionate, insightful, humorous, utterly delightful, and still deeply mysterious presence. This book is about what you have learned from God from people's accounts of NDEs and your personal encounters. And that's what's exciting about this book because it's it's just looking at what what God is all about through through our stories, which is a chapter. So we'll get to that. We'll get to um, that in a few minutes. So speaking of George, I'd like to talk about chapter two. Um, for the listeners, that the beautiful book is broken down into 13 chapters, I think it is. And each one concentrates on, on just its own profound topic. So we're just going to talk about a few of those today. But chapter two is about God and relationships. And I believe that you do. I believe as you do that most, if not all times, we really become involved in a relationship for, for our higher purpose. Can you, can you just speak on that? Yeah, really. I was, I said in the book, you know, that um, I just, where I come into God is relationships. Yes. Uh, all these arguments about does God exist? I, you know, I know those arguments as a philosophy professor, but where the action is, is relationships. The, the thing is to have a relationship with God. And I really do think that God participates in our relationships with other people. And um, it's uh, it. Sometimes I think these relationships can begin even before we are born. And in the book, I talk about just an incredible series of events that joined George Ritchie and me. George was from Richmond, Virginia. Um, my parents are from Porterdale, Georgia. Okay, and. So I heard George's experience in Charlottesville in 1965, went on to study lots of other cases. And about uh, 10 years later, I wrote this book, uh, Life After uh, Life. And I had never talked with George since that 1965 meeting where I heard his, his experience. But um, when I finished the book was getting ready to be published in 1975. I called George. That was the first, uh, this was in October, probably of 1975. I called him and said, hey, I'm Dr. You know, I'm Raymond Moody. And, you know, your experience changed my life. I wonder if I could uh, dedicate the book to you. And um, George said, well, yeah, that's very nice. He said, and said but, uh, I would prefer that you dedicate it to the Christ who gave me this experience. So that's what the dedication means uh, to George Ritchie, MD, and through him to the one whom he suggested. So the book got published I, in, in November of 75. I graduated from medical school in January of 1976 from the Medical College of Georgia. And so I decided I wanted to go back to Charlottesville for my um, psychiatry residency. So in March of 76, my wife and I flew up there and 
uh, I did my interviews. And I, during the day, I called Dr. Ritchie just to make contact. And he said, we all come on over to me. And incredibly, he had dinner for us that night. So the next day, I, my wife and I flew back to Macon, Georgia, where my parents lived. And that night, uh, I was just sitting in my parents' den living room area and uh, talking to my dad, who was, by the way, a surgeon and a military officer, if you put those two personalities <laughs> yeah. together, right. you know, you get my dad. And so um, by then, dad had heard a tape of George Ritchie's experience. So when I mentioned that I'd heard Dr. Ritchie, seen Dr. Ritchie the night before, he said, huh, that's really interesting. George Ritchie, Camp Barkley, Texas. That was where George's experience had taken place in 1943. George Ritchie, Camp Barkley, Texas, December 1943. He said, you know, I was there and so were you. Oh, and my, my mom and dad had moved to Camp Barkley in early September, which I didn't know, of 43, so that dad could go to officer's candidate school. I was conceived in late September. George's experiences was around December 24th, 1943. And my mom and dad moved away from Camp Barkley on December 29th, 1943. So I was there in utero when this experience took place that changed my life That's and amazing. didn't know it until after the book was published. Right. And you have a lot of other stories in the book, too, about the just the synchronicities, I'll use that word, of people just, and I think we all experience that, but if we can just maybe quiet our minds a little bit and be aware of that, yeah. that, that people do come into our lives um, for a reason. They do. If I can go on a little bit with that, I had uh, sure. back in 1964, I come from a kind of law enforcement family. A lot of the, you know, I've always grown up being afraid to put in handcuffs, <laughs> but a lot of cops. And, and so um, back in 1964, I'd been driving around in the countryside with my uncle Fairley, who was a law enforcement officer. He was the chief of police in a little town for 30 years. And when he barely finally retired, they had to hire three officers to take his place. <laughs> so we were just cruising around in the countryside and out in Newton County, Georgia. And I just, we ran into this old grist mill, you know, with the wheel on the outside, to, right? And so I was just charmed. And I make a long story short, I decided then and there, what a great place to live. So for the next few summers, I looked all around Georgia trying to find an old grist mill. Found out quickly that there are few and far between, okay, that the people who own them don't want to sell them. So Fast forward 20 years, I was in, uh, I was in, or more than that, I was in uh, Carrollton, Georgia, as a professor of psychology at uh, West Georgia College. And I had come across this mirror gazing technique for calling up the deceased. That's an ancient Greek technique. So I wanted a place out in the country to do some research and writing. So I, um, started looking all around Carrollton, and I never thought of an old grist mill. I had given that up years before, you know, that's just unrealistic. So um, not having any success because Carrollton is in the orbit of the Atlanta real estate market. 
So I was kind of discouraged. In November of 1989, I went into the psychology department office and the secretary, Nancy, Nancy Gillespie was her name, said, well, Raymond, you know, she said, if you, she's from Alabama, so she said, if you just go right across the state line, there's, you know, the real estate prices over there are not, you know, she said, you'll be able to find something you can afford over there. So I called a friend of mine in Atlanta who was a real estate agent <clears throat> who I knew was, um, was from Alabama. So I said, Robin, can you take me over to Alabama to look for a house? Uh, I mean, like a place out in the country. Now, you know, but every, you know, all my friends know I have no sense of direction right, you know, right. oriented in space. So um, I didn't give Robin any instructions as to where I, my only criterion was that it had to be close enough to the state line that I could get back and forth three times a week from my classes. So in January of 1990, Robin called me up one evening and she said, Raymond, will you, can I take you over to Alabama tomorrow to look for a house? And I never said anything to Robin either about a grist mill. That was a given up thing. Right. So, so next morning, she, next morning she came and I had no idea where we were going, but she knew it wouldn't have it wouldn't have competed anyway so we started and she said well the place we were going to the reason she had chosen that particular place was that her son's best friend was the local chief deputy sheriff and he was going to spend the day he had read my book and he was going to spend the day showing us around so long story short got around the car going about two hours and in the middle of nowhere, I found this beautiful little Victorian cottage for sale with the for sale sign. And the agent was Kirk Moore. And so uh, Don, the sheriff, said, you know, it's Kirk is one of my good friends. Let's go talk to him. So into the Kirk's office. I met Kirk. We were all standing up and I, you know, he's, I said, uh, I'm interested in that little Victorian cottage you have for sale. And Kirk said, I, I was standing to his side and I saw him look out like this. And he said, well, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm looking for a place out of the country to do some research and writing. And he said, let me take you by a place near where I live. So he drove me on this long country road down across a bridge to an old Christmas. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not making this up. I swear to God. Yeah. So, so, but you know, that was before cell phones. So right. it, it's Kirk showed me and then he, then he started back driving back to his office. He said, well, I tell you the truth. He said, the reason I'm showing you this, he said, it's not for sale. He said, but the reason I'm showing it to you is that the old couple who live there, their, their children are grown up and they go to the same church that I do. And the parents were resisting. The children were, the grown children were uncomfortable with their parents living out in the middle of nowhere in an old grist mill. So they had asked Kirk to sort of try to help them ease their parents out of the grist mill. So he went back to his office, picked up the phone, and I heard all this whole thing. Ms. Dore kind of talked loud, and so I was saying, he said, Ms. Dore, can I bring this, this man's from out of town, can I bring him by to see your house? And she said, you, I heard you, you can't, Kirk, but we're not going to sell this place, we love our house. <laughs> 
So back to the mill, went in the front door, greeted Miss Door and shook her hand. And I said, I'm Raymond Moody. And she said, Raymond Moody, Raymond Moody, are you the man that wrote that book? And she took me to the, by the fireplace to the bookshelf and I put, pulled out not my book, but George Ritchie's book, oh, wow. which I had written the foreword. And she handed it to me like this and showed me the inscription in it. And she said, well, Dr. George Ritchie is one of our dear, dear friends. Oh. <laughs> she said, this must be a sign. What an amazing story. So, you know, in George's many times like that, these incredible things yeah. where his, he has and entered he the life. house. You bought the house, right? I did. Yeah. 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 Wow. It's I lived there for I guess amazing. 25 years. Yeah. Right. Well, that that segues into one of my favorite chapters, of course, is chapter three. Mm -hmm. And it's about God's love and what you learned um, when you not only from your personal experiences, but from all of the NDE, NDEs that you've, you know, that you've heard about, the stories that the main emphasis is on love. And that when many times when people have these experiences, the question they're asked are, how have you learned to love? That's right. And you talk about everyone is in the book, like everyone's chasing something in life. You didn't really yeah. think you were until you realized that you That's right. yeah. Yeah. knowledge, right? But yeah. that learning to love isn't the most important thing. And, and right. so Ken, what have you learned about God's love? Well, you know, as, as you said, all of the people I know, whatever they were chasing, when they have their life reviews, they say, and then often in the accompaniment of Christ or God, they say what God is interested in is not anything like your earthly accomplishments, but how you have learned to love. And people say you don't hear words, but the, the thought comes, how have you learned to love? And that's what is, comes to fore in this panorama. And whatever you've done, I mean, there's compassion and love and understanding, but um, but that's what everybody comes back and says that, you know, whatever they were looking for before that they say that what this life we're in is all about is learning how to love. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a very transformative thing for people. They, they say that. And incidentally, as George Ritchie himself once told me, he said, you know, it doesn't. You know, you see that. You see everything you've ever done. And you see it from the perspective, not just when you, that you had when you were doing each action, but also you see it in this review from the perspective of the other person that you were interacting with. So if you see yourself doing something mean to somebody, then you feel the sadness. Or if you see yourself doing a giving or loving action to someone, you feel the good feelings. Yeah. And even after that, George says, he told me one time, he said, Raymond, um, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And well, now, George was very kind-hearted, and he just, you know, he wouldn't say it like this, but I've heard that same sentiment from a lot of people who've had these experiences, and what they're getting at is, as I like to say, 
let's face it, it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one of our fellow human beings, right? right. <laughs> and so what people say is, yeah, they know that the important importance of love and they see, they've seen it in their life review, but that you're still a human being and you still fly off the handle and do all these things. And so, uh, so it becomes a sort of lifelong spiritual quest and i've known so many of them now that you know it this really comes through their personalities that they are really on a spiritual quest to um to live up to this ideal right the transformation is so it's just it's ineffable really <laughs> the transformation that that the people that these ndeers that they go through. They're, we were talking about Dr. Eben Alexander a little bit before before the yeah. show, who I interviewed um, a few months ago, and that you, I don't think you, you'll mind me saying that you talked to a few of his colleagues about mm -hmm. him before his NDE, and they're just yeah. amazed how much he's changed and transformed and what's really important to him now. And you That's hear that right. over. Just by coincidence, I met the Episcopal priest, not his own clergyman, but it was a, a neighbor Episcopal priest who was went there to the hospital when Eben was near death and so on and went in just as a friend. But he, this, you know, this priest made the same comment that was, you know, that Eben was always really great, nice yeah. and all, but that, you know, the, the person you see now is so is uh, transformed right. yeah and what a way to you know you you think about the lessons that you learn if you do you know if you know the bible but just those that simple lesson but the most important lesson that you realize from these these stories from these many, many stories and that it's all about love and how it changes, right. whether you've had an ND or not. But when you really dive into this, it sure changes how I walk in life. You know, every single person I, you're right. I try my best. I try not to choke anyone, but. <laughs> I've, I've managed to, you know, distance myself from that urge, but you know, you still, you still, still do get angry. Yeah, of course. We're only human, right? So let's talk about, I think it, this book is a lot about the chapter on stories. God yeah. and stories. And um, really listening to people's stories is a, is one way to understand God. And what you said earlier that you believe that God follows stories very closely and that we are our life stories. And you had also mentioned that, I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this, but well, actually, I think you said <laughs> That would make sense. <laughs> the physical world may be made of atoms, but the human world is made of stories. And it, it's so true. And so talk a little bit about, I know in the book you talk your experience of working with the elderly and how yeah. they now see that their, their lives as a story. And also, I just, I'd love to hear you um, expand a bit on David Hume and, and talking mm -hmm. about reincarnation versus versus random randomness of randomness of life because i just find that 
it makes so much sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, I thank God all the time that I went and got a PhD in philosophy before I went to medical school and psychiatry, because, you know, many of the big problems we have in medicine and psychiatry, you can't really solve them by scientific reasoning. There's deep deep spiritual and philosophical questions. And um, one of the big philosophical questions is what in the name of God are we? You know, like, what is the essence of a person's identity? And in philosophy, the big turning point was Plato, who was the idea, who figured out the idea of the immaterial, immortal soul. And Pythagoras had said a similar thing, but Plato really sharpened that idea. And that was... um, that was what got taken up into medieval philosophy up in, you know, for perpetuated by the church and so on. And so on that, um, on that score, the body, it, Plato said, is just a sort of an illusionary thing which disintegrates as soon as we're dead, but that the essence of us is our immaterial immortal soul. Well, back in the 1500s, they were begin to loosen up about that. And people said, well, what does that mean? And it's not a very clear idea. Thomas Hobbes, who was one of the sort of crusty um, philosophers of England, uh, said, you know, that there, it doesn't make any sense to talk about an immaterial soul. And then Locke, John Locke, who was uh, had a lot to do with the formation of our uh, constitution with his um, um, ideas about politics, and he lived in the 1600s. And Locke thought about it, and he said, well, what constitutes your personal nature, your personal identity, is your memories, that you are, in effect, your memories. Well, there's some difficulties with that. And so, you know, I just always thought about that question. And then when I was a psychiatry resident, I had a really wonderful year where I worked in a geriatrics clinic um, where it was a kind of VIP clinic, if I could put it that way. I mean, you know, when the mayor and our um, police chief or city council people or the distinguished people come into the psychiatry clinic, well, they can't be seen at the front door with all us peons, you know, you got to sneak them in the back. And I was kind of older than the other residents and was known for my book. And so I was it. And so for a year, I got to meet to meet with all these very distinguished elderly men and women. And uh, throughout that year, I kept hearing the same thing. And these people were so reflective. And a lot of them were just there, as I figured out, was just there because they're lonely. I mean, it was usually situational stress or loneliness, haven't wanted somebody to talk to. So uh, throughout that year, I kept hearing these people say, you know, Raymond, the older I get, when I look back at my life, I get this, well, uncanny is my word, but this feeling that that, I'm, that my whole life has been a kind of movie or script or play, or you know, they use different words. And so um, then I heard that same comment from um, 
Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, on one of his tapes. And I got to thinking about it. So I've just kind of figured out that this is what, you know, a certain kind of reflective older person begins to think. I'm into my phase now where it, it seemed strange when I was in my 30s. But now I, you know, here at 76, I can begin to see what they're talking about, like the, the story aspect of life. And you look back and you see all of these connections that seem to be more based in drama or, you know, the a dramatical structure than in a structure of the physical universe. And so that's what I've come to. What is our personal identity and what I think you are and what I think I am and all our fellow human beings, we are our stories. And I was thinking about this. It took me a long time to sort of come to the realization that there is an afterlife. You know, I mean, I got to God long before I got to the afterlife because, um, you know, it's, it's just a very obscure con concept to me. And um, I never bought that it was oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? Because the, these experiences, because one of my own medical school professors very early in my education told me that she had had the same experience of leaving her body and seeing the light and the tunnel and all when she was un trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate her own mother. And, you know, as her mother died, she herself got up and she looked down and saw the scene and then saw her mother in spirit form and saw her mother recede into this tunnel. So, you know, my professor wasn't ill or injured. There was no oxygen deprivation to her brain. Yet she had the, and I've heard hundreds of these subsequent. So it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain, but what it was, I didn't know. Then a few years ago, some things began to happen that I just gave up. I mean, I am a skeptic in the genuine sense. These folks who tell us, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's the chemistry of the brain. Well, that statement is a self-contradiction because what a skeptic is invented by Pyrrho, the great P-Y-R-R-H-O, the Greek philosopher who about 30 years after Aristotle, he, had, he understood logic very well, the early skeptics did. But, and you know, if you think of logic as a system for generating conclusions. So what the skeptics said is, well, yeah, you know, what if we apply the rules and yet we don't generate, we don't make the conclusion, see? And so it was a spiritual practice. So it's refraining from drawing a conclusion so that you will see other possibilities that everybody else missed. And, and um, so also because it expands your mind. So knowing that, you see, when somebody says, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. That's like saying, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, but my conclusion is such and such. So they don't know what they're talking about. They should actually read some philosophy. Yeah. Um, but um what it was, I just didn't know, and I still can't draw a conclusion logically. But in terms of my feelings, I give up. There is. Okay, all right. I stutter and say, to my astonishment, there is an afterlife. So then it really becomes pressing. Well, then what it is that survives, you know? I mean, if, and so putting all that together, I've, I've come to some, come to the thought that what happens is that we go through one story or consciousness of a story 
you know, your whole consciousness is geared to a story. Yes. Isn't it? Think about it. Because whenever something new happens in your life, what do you do? You, your mind automatically integrates it into your continuing life story, right? Mm -hmm. There's a principle of cinematography. I got, I forgot the guy who propounded this, but it's that cinematographers has discovered that the mind is set up in such a way that the mind will build a story between any two randomly um, presented images in sequence. And so the mind already is always tries to weave the story between the two. And that's, that's part of the effect of the movies. So um, that's what I think, that what we are is our stories. And about this time I was having all this debate with myself, I woke up in that hypnopompic state as you're waking up. And Ellie Wiesel, some of you younger folks may not know who he is, but he was this wonderful writer when I was a kid. I read some of his books. He was the Nobel Prize winner in um uh, uh, literature, I think in about 64, 65, somewhere in there. And I had read Ellie's books. He had, he had gone to Auschwitz and survived. And then he was a very wise, sweet man, very wonderful guy. So I woke up and I, that morning, it was in November, some years back, with Ellie Wiesel's voice in my head. And he was, the words that came were, I had read these words in his book, but so it was, you know, something I was remembering, you know, but, but he, he said, God made man because he loves stories. Wow. And I said, yeah, that's what it is. God is watching every single story. That's what People with near-death experiences say that when you have this life review, God is intimately familiar with everything you've ever done because it's right there in this panorama. And apparently, you know, what happens is that we, we lead one, the story forward as the actor or protagonist. And then at the end, time stands still and you just do a 180 degree turnabout mm -hmm. and you re-witness everything you've ever done through the eyes and feelings of the other characters. Just like sometimes you see that at the end of a movie, right? That little re-wit yes. reel. Yes. Yeah. And so now some of you listening who have a logical background say, oh, this is just a logical fallacy. That what he's, he's doing is he's taking one aspect of the human experience or human culture, and that is the theater, and he's projecting that out um, as, as a metaphor for the whole. And that's just metaphorical. That's not literal. And I understand that, that objection. I mean, I came up with it myself as I was thinking about this, but because um, I, you know, I taught logic for quite a while. And so, so. I think it happened the other way around. If you look at it historically, the reason we have theater is, as I gather, that as people get older, they look back on their life and they see that story like um, the way the theater got started was in ancient Athens and they had a harvest festival where a chorus would sing the old stories and so on. For reasons unknown, one particular performance, this guy Thespis, stepped forward and spoke his own lines and it created a sensation wow we want more of that right. well what are the greeks all about competition 
think of the Olympic Games. I mean, you know, it's just, it was very competitive society. So what Pisistratus, the king or the tyrant of Athens said, let's have a contest. Let's see who can write the best one of these. And so the first uh, prize winner was Aeschylus. Then came Sophocles, then came Euripides. In only 50 years from that onset, the profession was, the theater was a profession. Now, what I'm getting at is this idea that older people develop, that their life has been a story, that was the template which accounts for the, the, of, you know, the amazing reception of the theater. It was just like people were primed to that because Aeschylus and Sophocles, no doubt, you know, they were wise people. They had sort of realized this, this aspect of life. So, um, you know, we are our stories. And I think, you know, the way I put it together, you know, we go through one story and then we go to this incomprehensible process and we die and then we're back on another storyline. Right. You do, um, I, it touched me in the book where, you talked about the picture Plato and others have printed of a higher dimension of life, which our consciousness merges at birth into the world. And just imagine planning our next life, maybe a scripted yeah. story, and you will live, die, and return to the afterlife. Imagine choosing one's challenges. And it just seems it makes more, much more sense than just randomness, once again. It does. You know, I was even as a kid, I was impressed by that last scene of Plato's Republic, where he's saying that, you know, just before you come back in here, you, you see the way he describes it, like you have a guy and there's this flat surface. And Plato's saying that on the surface, you see all these different patterns. And it's interesting, he doesn't say lives and all he said these different patterns of life. And that you go through a choice process, right? And that then you come in here and he said, just before you come in here, his metaphor was you drink of the waters of forgetfulness and forget all you know. Yes. Right? Because if you came in here with all the other knowledge, it would kind of spoil the experience, right? You got to have on the blinders. And although, as Plato pointed out, some people do remember little bits and pieces of it, right? He said, if you... If you just quaff the waters of forgetfulness, and then you come in here, oh, you know, but he said, if you just sip a little bit and you can remember some of the previous stuff. Right. I read a story, um, I think it was from the ba Babylonian Talmud a long time ago. And it's exactly the story that you're talking about now, but it's an angel showing a child before they come on into this earthly realm, wow. showing a child above just, all the knowledge, which I'm getting to that chapter in just a second, all the knowledge of the world and the light and the beauty. And, and at the end of the conversation, then she puts her finger up to the child's lip and says, shh, and you can't, and you won't, you won't remember. It's not to remember. Yeah. And that's why everybody has that little indentation. On oh, the how interesting. <laughs> that's really fascinating. Yeah. I thought that was just such a, such a yeah. great story. I think this is a great time to wrap up the first part of this interview. Raymond will be back next week to continue with this fascinating information about his new book, God is Greater Than the Bible. Hope you can make it.